Alright, we're going to look at two noble churches this morning in Acts 17. We're going to cover verses 1 through 15. To set up the stage, we've got to remember what happened last week when we looked at Acts. Paul had been in Philippi ministering, and, and, uh, and it was great. It was a great ministry. Um, the first convert of Europe, Lydia, and then the Roman jailer, established the Philippian church. And that church, the church of Philippi, became a huge, huge comfort to Paul for the rest of his life. In fact, there's a, there's a trade secret amongst pastors that if you ever go to a new church to pastor it, start by preaching Philippians. Because Philippians is one of the only books where Paul's not having to deal with issues. It's just, he loves that church. And it's just awesome. And it's a, it's a really joyful book to preach. I considered doing that when we started Waypoint, but I already knew y'all, and so I didn't. But, but that's a trade secret. The church at Philippi, for the rest of Paul's life and ministry, was a huge support to him. In fact, he said of them that they were the only church who supported him in missions um, in all of Macedonia immediately. Others would come along, but not immediately. Nonetheless, the church at Thessalonica and the church at Berea, which we're going to consider today, are two awesome churches as well. When I say that, that the book of Philippians really has no problems in it, um, Thessalonica didn't really have any problems except some theological understanding. Um, they were an awesome church. And unfortunately, I've often lamented that we don't have a letter from Paul addressed to the church at Berea. Because it's the only church that was given the title, they were more noble than Thessalonica, which is a huge compliment. I wish we had some kind of letter to expound on that church there and what made them so. But we're going we're gonna to look at what we do know about them. All right? Let's begin. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 in Acts 17. That's the church at Thessalonica. And then we'll move on from there. So Acts 17, 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now real quickly, remember I mentioned also that Luke had joined them and he, he went to the first person plural, we, right? We went here, we did this. Notice that uh, in verse 1 it says, now when they had passed, he, he goes back to second person plural. It indicates that Luke probably was left behind at Philippi to continue continue to pastor that church. Remember, Paul and Silas had to leave. But I think what happened was Luke was left there to continue pastoring that church and build them up in their faith because he switches his language again here in 17.1. So they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. We don't really know why Paul didn't stop in Amphipolis in Apollonia. They were two major towns. Um, the best guess is that there wasn't a synagogue there. We've known from Acts that Paul's custom was to go to the synagogue first, wherever he, uh, he ended up. And we read immediately that there was a synagogue, and it was actually a very large synagogue of Jews in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. And uh, they had a very large Jewish population. It was about 90 miles from Philippi. Probably took him about three days to get there. Traveled 30 miles to get to Amphipolis. Another 30 or so miles to get to Apollonia, and the next day, the third day, they came to Thessalonica. This town was named after Alexander the Great's half-sister, and it was a, pro a provincial 
administration, which means they were allowed by Rome to govern themselves with what was called these polytarchs. Um, so it was a pretty major city. The Roman highway, the Ignatian Way, ended or came to that town, and there was major highways going every direction out of this place. It was a cultural hub, it was a political hub, and uh, an economic hub as well. So Thessalonica was an extremely important city with a large gathering of Jews. So Paul goes to the synagogue in verse 2. And it says this, When Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, that would be those people who just kind of hang out in the marketplace looking for trouble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So let's look at this awesome account. Paul spent three Sabbath days reasoning from the Scriptures with them. Now I love this because it indicates something about Paul. He had just been persecuted in Philippi by the Jews. And he actually tells the Thessalonians when he came to them, if you read 1 Thessalonians, when he came to them, he came in much distress. So what happened to him in Philippi was a major deal. Remember, he had been beaten with rods by the Roman uh, magistrates. He'd been thrown in prison, mistreated. And so there was physical distress. There was emotional and spiritual distress as well. He was grieved that he had to leave that young church at Philippi behind. I think that's why Luke stayed, to build them up. Again, you see Paul's shepherd heart. He always wanted to make sure that they were built up and left continuing to grow. But he came to Thessalonica in much distress. Nonetheless, what's he do? Goes straight back to the synagogue. Some people would say Paul's methodology is foolish. I won't. I call it bold. There's always going to be cost involved in preaching the gospel when you want to reach someone. And foolish reasoning tries to avoid that. Not Paul. Paul, as he would explain to the church of Corinth, became all things to all people. To the Jews he became as a Jew. So that he might win some. So that's what he's doing. He's reasoning daily, three Sabbaths, at least three weeks, in the synagogue with the Jews. It's, it's more likely that after those three weeks were up, he didn't leave at that point. He wasn't chased out of town at that point. He probably stayed for several more weeks ministering to the Greeks and Gentiles. We're told that a great many of them believe. But let's talk about the words that Luke uses here. This is important. So he's reasoning with them from the scriptures. What is he doing? 
First, he's explaining, and second, he's proving from the Scriptures. He's explaining from the Scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then he's proving from the Scriptures that it was necessary for him to rise, or to suffer and rise from the dead. That's super important. The word explaining literally is uh, translated open. It's the, the only other place it's used in the New Testament was used by the, uh, Luke in his Gospel. When Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with the disciples and he opened up the Scriptures... Remember? That's the only other place this is used. And Jesus there literally illuminates the scriptures from Moses onward about himself. That's what Paul's doing. He gets there and he opens up the word to him, proving as his aim that Christ had to suffer and that he had to rise from the dead. If you remember, even the apostles themselves during the ministry of Christ stumbled over that teaching. Remember when Jesus, as the test of his ministry, in Mark chapter 8, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you're the son of God. You're the, you're the Christ. And from that point on, Jesus starts saying, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be persecuted. Remember what Peter did? He rebuked Jesus. Far be it from you that these things happen, Lord. And that's when Jesus' famous rebuke of Peter was given, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God. That teaching that the Christ had to suffer was a stumbling block. He said that in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church. Why? Because the Jews were expecting a political savior. And when they recognized that Jesus was being crucified as an offering for sin, that didn't meet their expectation or desire because they didn't see themselves as needing that kind of Savior. But that's what God understood we needed. And so Paul, with the Jews, always had his work cut out for him when he presented this teaching. And the way he did it, the way we do it, is you've got to convince people of that truth by showing them this is what the Word says. You open up the Word. It's so difficult for us sometimes because we get intimidated, we don't know where to go, and I'm going to talk about this as one of my later applications, but the, the persuasion of people always must come first, not from my argument, but hey, what does the word actually say? That's been one of the driving philosophies of Waypoint since we've started. When we get together, I'm not really so concerned what your theological views are coming here. What I'm concerned about is whatever you hold to, are you willing to look at it in the scriptures? We're going to, you have an interesting question tonight. Um, in, in, uh, when we get to Berea, the church at Berea, Paul does the same approach with them. And they were diligent to test it according to the word. Verse 12 says, many of them therefore believe. In other words, when you stick to the word, it will speak for itself. And it will do the convincing. You don't have to... Look to yourself to be persuasive, to be intelligent. Simply open the word. That's what Paul does here. That's what that word means, explains. What does the word say? And why does it say that? It was necessary for Christ to suffer because man's greatest need was not a political savior. It was a spiritual one. We were separated from him and he came to save us. The word proving. So that's the second name. He explained and then he proved. 
The word means to set out in order and put on display. There's a very organized way that Paul tried to minister to people. And we've got to pay attention to that. You've got to build a foundation to build up on. So many times in our zeal, I don't want to knock us for evangelistic zeal, but we're haphazard in how we do it. And and we're more truncated um, than anything. Paul literally set all these things in order and put them on display. He made a logical, consistent, powerful case through the word and let him look at it. Part of the reason that's so effective with people is this. When you're ministering to people, there's always going to be pushback against the truth. And very often, they get hung up on the messenger rather than the message. And that's one of my greatest fears when I preach, because I know I have habits of speaking, or, or I do this a lot, you know. And I, don't, I always fear that I'm going to be a hindrance to people hearing what's being said. Paul literally is working to lay the scripture out, put it in order, put it on display, because then the people have to wrestle with that, and not me. Because if they reject it, there's a clear case. Hey, you you understand that if you reject this, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting this very word you say that you believe in to the Jews. They held the Torah in very high esteem. Remember, the scriptures Paul is using is the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament. He's reasoning all through the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is sufficient to explain and to prove that the Christ had to suffer. And so Paul is literally putting it in their lap saying, if you reject this, you're rejecting your own heritage. This is what the Word says. That makes the persuasion much more powerful in my mind, does it not? The Jews were zealous for their faith. Jesus said of the Pharisees in in the Gospel of John, hey, you search the Scriptures, but you search in vain because the Scriptures testify of me and you don't believe in me. It's not that they weren't in the Word and zealously looking for the Savior. They missed the Savior despite being in the Word. So Paul had to refocus their thinking. It's so important, his methodology here, especially in connection with the Jews. So, Let's move on here. The triumph of Paul's methodology was this. In verse 4, some of them, that is some of the Jews, were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas. Jason is mentioned later in this account, was one of them. There's a few others that we know joined Paul later in his life and ministry from Thessalonica. Jason is the Greek name for Yeshua or Joshua And uh, many of the Jews who went to Greek-speaking cities changed their name to Jason. So this this man was a a Jewish man who uh, became a believer, and he actually was housing Paul and his missionary team. They were staying with him. (coughs) So some of the Jews were persuaded. A great many of the God-fearing or devout Greeks were persuaded. And then he adds, not a few of the leading women. Now this is important because in that day... The women had a prominent place in society in certain respects, in fashionable respects. And they were looked to. Many of these women would have been politically influential. And when the Jews or the Greeks saw them converting over to Christianity, 
it would have caused jealousy immediately because their political power was being taken from them. So there's great triumph. Paul immediately, through this dedicated exposition of Scripture, putting it out before them, patiently explaining, exposing the Word to them, answering questions. I didn't say that. Um, I was talking to Bo about this yesterday. Sometimes in, in preaching settings like this, um, I, I don't feel so comfortable preaching as I do teaching people. Because I very much like back and forth dialogue. I love that. Preaching is, is very, very hard for me, honestly. It's, it's not my comfort zone. What Paul was doing at Thessalonica was not preaching. It was the back and forth dialogue. We actually get our word didactic from it. He's answering questions. He's letting them wrestle with the things he's pointing out to them. If they have a question, he patiently answers it and shows them and explains. That's what happened for over three weeks with the Jews. It's a beautiful picture of Paul's heart, right? He's not coming in just trying to ramrod this down him, but he is being forceful and persuasive and saying, this is what it says. Let me answer your questions. Check it out. And back and forth happened. And through that, they were persuaded. That's how the most effective way of evangelism happens, even today. I also said this a while back, but in our uh, opening statement to our statement of faith, I made sure to put in there, we want to be a church where you're allowed to ask questions. Why? Because that's how you grow. And that's how you get established in the faith. If you're not allowed, and, and an environment is created where, hey, this is the truth. You just better take it or leave it, bud. Then that church is not going to grow. It's going to become stagnant. We've got to be able to dialogue and check these things out and have your questions answered without fear. That's what Paul's doing here with Thessalonica. Isn't that beautiful? Sometimes we don't see the great apostle Paul in that light, do we? He was very much on their level, though he was way up here as a giant. He came down here and met them where they were at. Paul has such a heart for the Jews. In Romans chapter 10, he said this of them. He said, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And it broke his heart every time he'd go to a synagogue and reason with them and have some of them walk away. And not just walk away, some of them actually turn and persecute him. He never stopped loving the Jews. I can testify to you as a pastor, that is the hardest thing to have to endure. When you've endured with somebody, explaining the truth to them, and they still walk. There's nothing harder than that. Because you love them. And you know they're just outright rejecting Christ. And so Paul never stopped praying for them. I've heard the argument, you don't pray for people's salvation. Baloney. Paul said in Romans 10.1, My heart's desire and my prayer to God is for what? their salvation. He prayed for their salvation. Paul did. He prayed constantly for the Jews' salvation. Make that one of our prayers. Start praying for the people in your life, whether friends, family, whoever, co-workers, start praying for their salvation. And guess what God will start doing? He'll give you opportunity. Now, it may be that you have to put yourself out there like Paul did. You may have to go there and say, okay, I'm going to the synagogue. And as a visiting rabbi, they would give him opportunity to speak. He wouldn't say, nah, it's okay, I don't have anything to say. No, when they opened that opportunity up, he stood up and he preached. Why? Because his desire 
was for their salvation. He took advantage of it. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, make sure I'm not skipping anything. I love this. Yes, there is a, there's an interesting point, I did say this, with Thessalonica, when we read their letter, Paul's letter to them, is that in Acts, we don't really, we have a very short view of how long he was there. It seems like he was just there and gone. And he might have been, it may have been five, six weeks, maybe eight weeks he was there, we don't really know, we know at least three weeks he was there. But when you read the letters to him, which Almost universally, everyone agrees that Paul left Thessalonica, he was sailed, or he went to Berea, and then he had to go to Athens, and then he came to Corinth. And that he wrote his first letter, 1 Thessalonians, while in Corinth, not very long after he left Thessalonica. When you read that letter, 1 Thessalonians, it's amazing to take note of the broad spectrum of teaching that Paul covered with that young church. In fact, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, that's largely where we get Paul's eschatology, his view of the end times, what's going to happen, the rapture, the coming of Christ, before that, the coming of Antichrist, and the falling away, and all these things. That's, in those letters, that's where Paul laid it out. Now, can you imagine teaching a brand new church who's just weeks old those doctrines today? You'd lose them. But Paul taught a huge spectrum of teaching to these churches. It tells me something about maybe our approach in the modern church, and maybe it's more commentary on where our society is at or where people are at, but I saw this to be true when I was a youth pastor, is we don't challenge our people enough. And when I would dig deep with the youth, guess what? They would respond. And they'd go deep. They were very often deeper and asking deeper questions than the adults. And it was so much fun. But I think churches are, are allowed to remain stagnant and shallow because In part, their pastors are fearful of digging deep. Paul wasn't. Go read those two letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and you see just in a matter of weeks how deep Paul went with them. Now, there's obviously a limit on to how much they could actually take in, but he still covered it. And at their pace, they could chew on it. It's an excellent point to consider as far as the triumph that we see in Thessalonica. But there's also trial. If we pick up in uh, verse 5 there. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. But Paul and Silas and the team was not at his house at the time. They could not find them. So they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the authorities, shouting, I want you to notice what they're saying and what they're doing. These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. In other words, Paul and Silas' reputation preceded them. They knew what Paul had done at Philippi and elsewhere. Isn't that great? (laughs) One of the saddest things, this is kind of a rabbit, one of the saddest things at funerals that we have to deal with as pastors is is not really knowing the person's testimony. I hope that when I get to that one where I'm laying in the box in front of the preacher, whoever's preaching for my funeral, that my reputation has preceded me. I preach my own sermon. It's Paul's testimony. Now they view it in a negative light. They've turned the world upside down. We view it as, yes, good. 
The world needed to be turned upside down. And Jason has received them. Again, that's a negative thing for these men. They're all acting. Here's the serious, most serious charge. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now remember, location-wise, where is Paul right now? He's in modern-day Europe. Did anybody pick up on the similarities to what happened to Jesus 30 years earlier down in Palestine? The Jews stirred up the mob, and at Jesus' trial, what'd they say? Stirred up the mob to say, crucify him, crucify him. We want Barabbas. Same tactic. Isn't that interesting? And not only that, the same charge was brought against Jesus. You're saying you're a king, but Rome has one king and it's Caesar. Are you challenging that? Because that is a, an offense worthy of death to them. Same tactics, same charge used 30 years earlier against our Lord. Interesting tactic to take note of. I have the references there if you want to go check that out later. So despite the triumph, there's trial. Now, this will be one of my applications in a minute. I'll say it now. One of the things we must embrace as a church is that truth. There really will not be triumph without trial. And what we've got to decide is, like I spoke last week, are coming to a place where we're content with that in our hearts. Because we can resist it. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to pay the cost of what this will take. Paul was. He, remember, he came to Thessalonica very distressed, he said. It didn't stop him from paying the price again. And he won some more, but he endured more trial nonetheless. It's a pattern that will be repeated over and over and over. And it's one that we can, in our heart, be hindered from truly ministering to people because we don't want that. And so we'll remove ourselves. Let's move on to Berea. Verse 10. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, let me finish reading verse, uh, verse 8. So the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So there's a pledge given by Jason and the other believers who are dragged before them. What that pledge entailed, probably a pledge to, to be peaceful. Uh, we're not really sure. Um, of course, it wasn't Jason and Paul causing the uproar, was it? <laughs> so it would be easy to make that pledge. Yeah, I'll be peaceful. Talk to these guys who drug me here. <laughs> Nonetheless. So verse 10 says this, The brothers then immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, what they do? Went into the synagogue of the Jews. Berea, let's get some information on Berea. So he was sent away by night under cover of darkness. Berea was about 50 miles from Thessalonica. Now remember, Thessalonica was on all the major highways. It was the, the center for them. Berea was very different. Berea was off the beaten path in the Greek mountains there. You had to be very intentional uh, to, one, to go to that city. It wasn't a major destination. There wasn't major economic or political cloud there. Nothing like that. But they were sent to Berea by night. 
Probably because it would be easy to get into the Greek mountains if they were being followed, chased, and evade. I don't know. Nonetheless, whatever the case, it was 50 miles off the beaten path from Thessalonica, southwest of the, of the city. In fact, uh, today there's evidence of at least 70 hidden churches there. Isn't that interesting? At one point in time, not, I don't know if it was all at one time, but 70 archaeological discoveries have been made there. Pretty cool. The Bereans were said to be more noble. Let's read this. I love this. Verse 11, it says this. Now these Jews were more noble than those in, those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Turn with me real quick to 1 Thessalonians. I want you to contrast how big of a statement this is. 1 Thessalonians. Paul describes how the Thessalonians received the word. We would read, we read 1 Thessalonians and admire them. How much more the Bereans, in other words. Let's read real quick. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's just begin in verse 2. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And you received the word in what? Much affliction. And with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they did that joyfully. They received the word despite being afflicted joyfully. Why? Because they've been fully persuaded, we're told in Acts, of its truth. Look, when you have the truth, that's the greatest thing you can ever attain in your life. Far more precious is it than gold and silver. They had it, and they willfully and joyfully received it, despite the affliction. But not only that, in verse 7, Paul says that they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. That's quite a testimony, is it not? And yet we're told by Luke that the Bereans were more noble than that church. What was it about the Bereans? What makes you more noble? I do want to say this, that Paul probably used the same exact method that he used at Thessalonica. He opened the word to them and he proved it. We're not told any different, but I, I don't have any reason to suspect that he did something different. That was his custom. So why were the Bereans more noble? The reason, I think, is that they searched the Scriptures diligently concerning what Paul said. There was a hunger present within them that wanted to know if such things were so, were told. That attitude of heart is what's lacking when Paul goes and visits the other Jews. They didn't listen with ears to see if these things were so, 
They listened with ears to see if they were not so. You see the difference? When you're being persuaded or trying to be convinced of an argument, you can listen with two very different dispositions of heart. And you run into this very frequently. You can listen so as to prove, man, is that true? Because if that's true, that's amazing. And I want to find out if it is. Or you can listen with a heart that says, I don't believe it. You really have to work to convince me. The Bereans were more noble. There was a hunger present within them. I want to say this. This kind of healthy skepticism in the Berean church, and I, don't, I hesitate to use the word skepticism because of how it's understood today. But there is a right kind of skepticism that every one of us should have. I want to work to labor and establish what that is. Okay? There's a skepticism that questions something, not in order to disbelieve it, but to believe. They were eager and they were ready to know the truth. And it was that same eagerness that caused them to test every claim against the Scriptures. They believed the Scriptures were the Word of God. Paul shows up and says something. He says, the Word says, is this so? Let's find out. It's a healthy skepticism. In other words, there was an open mind in the Bereans, yet a cautious mind. Does that make sense? If you have, for instance, an open mind without caution, what are you going to be susceptible to? <clears throat> Paul says you'll be susceptible to every wind of doctrine that comes through the church. He warned the Ephesian church about that. Don't be tossed to and fro by every new claim and every new teaching. Establish yourself. There's a healthy skepticism, but there's also a healthy open mind when it's with caution. But then there's also people who, if, they, if I were to say, have an open mind, man. You know what they hear? Compromise the truth, man. <laughs> no. There's got to be an open mind with caution. I'm not calling you to compromise, but I'm calling you to listen and test this. When we have a closed heart, a closed mind, guess what happens to you? You become unteachable, you become hard as a rock, you quit growing in your faith. Look, I hope, church, as a pastor, that 30 years from now, if I'm still pastoring, that I'm still growing. If ever I come to a point where my mind is closed, I will stop growing. I will be unteachable at that point. Yet I always want to maintain a caution because there's, it's true, there's false teachings we must be aware of. The Bereans exhibited this most perfectly. I love it. They teach us, the Bereans teach us, that perfect balance of open-mindedness with caution. They listened to Paul fairly. They took what he said without prejudice. And then they went to the Scriptures and examined it. And as I said earlier... In verse 12, what was the result? Therefore, many of them believed. Isn't that cool? When you deal with people who are open-minded, yet willing to test, they're not just going to take what you say wholesale, but they'll be fair to you. And what you're saying is straight out of the Word. Most of the time, they'll be persuaded. Unless something in their heart draws them away from it. A closed mind leads to a closed and cold heart. 
and it will equally shipwreck anyone's faith. This church, the Jews at Berea, I made this note, is every pastor's dream (laughs) to have a church of Bereans. There's several aspects about them. They were in the Word daily. That's every pastor's dream, that the body of Christ is hungry to know truth. That they've seen through all these uh, trinkets that the world puts out there for us to chase and waste our time on. They say, you know what? God's given me a jewel that's far more valuable and I'm going to spend my time pursuing that. They wanted to know the truth. They were in the scriptures daily, it says. But they also held the pastor, the speaker, to an accountability. Hey, you might be very eloquent. You might be very learned. You might be a miracle worker in Paul's case, whatever. But I'm still going to test what you say. A pastor who's proud and arrogant is not going to like that. They want you to just believe it. A true pastor will... We never read that Paul was offended by this. In fact, we can conclude just the opposite. He was glad. Right? He calls them more noble. And he gave high praise to the Thessalonians. They were more noble than the Thessalonians. He, he welcomed that attitude and encouragement from him. Why? Because he was fully persuaded of the truth of the gospel. Turn with me real quick to Romans. Chapter 1. greatest books ever written. The thesis statement of Romans, the theme of the book is Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I want to highlight verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Literally in the Greek, that should read this. For I am not shamed by the gospel. Now when we read it that way, we don't, what's that mean? I'm not shamed by the gospel. So we translate, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I think that's a bad translation. Here's why. The Berean church, Paul comes to town, preaches the gospel, And they say, okay, give us some time to check it out. We'll test it. They do, and they come to faith. Everywhere Paul went, he had such confidence in the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God and the salvation. That everywhere he went and preached, he was never put to shame by the gospel. It would always accomplish its work. He was never left as a fool, in other words. It'd be like having a partner and uh, you're on a tour, you know, and making all these truth claims. And then in the middle of the crowd, your partner says, oh, that's not what I believe. You're put to shame by him, right? You're just kind of left hanging. The gospel and Paul's partnership with it, he was never put to shame by it. It always did its work. It always testified to the truth. And people were always saved and converted. Isn't that cool? Never put to shame by the gospel. Everywhere I go, I preach it. Why? Because it's the power of God and the salvation To everyone who believes. The Berean church is that perfect example. They tested it. Therefore, many of them believed. And not a few, again, 
in verse 12 back in Acts 17, not a few of Greek women of high standing as well as the men. Let me give you a couple quotes. This is G. Campbell Morgan. He says this, the noble hearer is not the one who immediately says yes to the interpretation of the preacher. The noble hearer is the one who appeals again and again to the scriptures themselves to find out if these things be true. It's dead on. Let's read the rest of the Berean account and then we'll get into some of these applications. So verse 13 says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Same heart, same methodology. I don't know how they found out, but they found out Paul was in Berea. Verse 14, so the brothers, that is the brothers in Berea, immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So they get to the seashore. The Jews uh, had chased Paul out of Berea also. Same pattern that we see. He preaches the, the truth there. There's triumph. And there's trial, consistent in Paul's life till the end. And Paul had to be taken to the sea and sailed down to Athens. That would have been the least common way, by the way, to get to Athens. Um, probably they did that because it was the safest way for Paul at that point. That whole region had been stirred up. Philippi, Thessalonica, now Berea. And so to stay on those highways would have been very dangerous for Paul. So what they do? Put him on a boat, get him out to sea, and sail down to Athens. What's some applications in this? Because this is some good stuff. These noble churches teach us some very good stuff. First application I got out of this was work to be persuasive. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it will be your partner when you share, share it with people. It will be the convincing power behind what you say. Don't be ashamed of it. It won't shame you. Work to be persuasive. How do we do that? Well, we must engage with people in dialogue. You've got to start somewhere, right? So many of us in our life, and this is a tragedy, church, so many of us in our life will not share the gospel with one person. That's a shame. The church is the witness for Christ, not just the pastor, not just the missionaries they support, you. I would be devastated if I get to the end of my life and I've never shared the gospel with one person. So I'm going to encourage you. I'm not going to put you down. I want you to become missionaries. How do you start? First, you've got to be persuaded by the gospel. Then you've got to engage people in the dialogue. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to get up like I am in a pulpit. You can sit down one-on-one -on -one with someone and dialogue with them. Do it patiently. Answer their questions. If they pose a question and you don't have the answer, say, that's a good question, let me get back to you. That works to persuade them even greater because it shows your reasonableness. By the way, that's what James says, heavenly wisdom is like. It's peaceable, but it's also reasonable, he says. It's not dogmatic in the sense of, no, I'm not going to allow you to do that. Do you believe it or not? I'm going on. That's a terrible attitude. Patiently answer their questions. Give them time to work through this and pray that the Holy Spirit is working on their heart to convince them. But you've got to engage. You've got to take that step 
and open your mouth and go. So work to be persuasive. I mentioned that word therefore in verse 12. I love how Paul did this. He, he engaged with them, gave them time to test it, and the results speak for themselves. Therefore, many of them believed. It's so good. It's such a good point. The third bullet point there, an ind- indispensable part of persuasion is courage. If you lack courage, you're not going to persuade anybody. There's going to be situations that are not comfortable for you to speak in. Be courageous. Look at, I've already established with Paul, he came from Philippi under a lot of distress. He was probably still wounded from the beatings. But what's he do? Goes straight back to the synagogue and engages with them. He's chased out of Thessalonica and what's he do? Goes straight to the synagogue and reasons with Paul and his team was a little band of incredibly courageous men. And in, in those cities' own testimony, they turned the world upside down. That's what courage can do. You've got to be courageous if you're going to be persuasive in anything. They faced threats. They faced violence. They faced opposition. They faced heckling. They faced lies, harm. And yet they persuaded many and endured it all. As a challenge to you, church, I would say this. I want to ask you this week in prayer, privately, that you would pray for a situation this week where you have to be courageous. I'm going to challenge you with that. Ask God, say, God, I've been apathetic, or I've been lazy in my faith, and I haven't shared with people. I don't want that. I don't really know where to begin, which I'm going to give you some pointers in a minute. But God, would you create a situation for me this week where I'm forced to be courageous and speak up? And I'll, I'll guarantee you this, if you do it in faith and willingness, God will be with you every step of the way. And he'll give you the courage, and you'll have great joy with it. Just like the Thessalonian church, they received the word with much affliction, yet with great joy. You won't be absent joy. You'll know the joy of the Lord when you do that. And you'll rise above those fearful situations. Look for ways that we can speak into people's lives persuasively. Still the most effective method of evangelism. Great advancements with the gospel are not going to otherwise come either to our community or to the world if the church isn't willing to be who we're called to be. And I think this is an area for our church that we struggle with, to be honest, is a lack of evangelistic zeal. We need to change. It's got to become a desire of yours, and you've got to step out in faith and do it. Let me give you some encouragement. Mary Slessor was a missionary to what's modern-day Nigeria. And as she stood on the banks ready to leave, she, she prayed this. She said, Lord, this task is impossible for me, but not for thee. Lead the way, and I will follow. Why should I fear? I am on a royal mission. I am in the service of the King of Kings. You know what that quote teaches us is this. There's going to be fear involved in everything. If you, if you say you're without fear, you're lying. There's going to be fear involved. In that moment, where are you going to cast your eyes? Are you going to look at your situation, your own strength? Or are you going to cast them to who it is you're serving? I'm on a royal mission. I'm serving the King of Kings. 
Here's what J. Oswald Sanders said. Courage is that quality of mind which enables one to encounter danger or difficulty with firmness or without fear or depression of spirit. The highest degree of courage is seen in the person who's most fearful but refuses to capitulate to it. It's a great quote. So we can see this pattern in Paul and his team. They won the loss to Christ through the presentation of the gospel, a courageous and persuasive presentation. They teach them and build them up. And then what happens? They challenge them to go do the same. In fact, that's what his praise for Thessalonica was. Paul had to flee that city, and he hears, man, your faith is resounded forth everywhere. Everyone knows who you are because you're making it known. Despite you being afflicted, despite you being persecuted, you're evangelizing still. Such a cool quote. So share the gospel. Explain. First, that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Why did he have to suffer? Because of the reality of sin that separates us from him. That's why he had to suffer. He's not a political savior. He's a spiritual one. He will have a political kingdom one day. Right now, he's setting up his kingdom in the hearts of people through being born again. Explain that Christ had to suffer and explain that he had to rise from the dead. Paul, if you want to study that, read Romans 2 through 4. It, says, it answers that question, why did Christ have to suffer? Because everyone's a sinner. Romans 3.10, not one of us is good. Why did he have to rise from the dead? Because we needed justification, he says at the end of Romans 4. Justification is that declaration from God that you are righteous. You see, Christ's resurrection for men meant that God can now declare men in right standing with him. Because Christ had paid the penalty through death, and he conquered it. There's no more to be You can be forgiven, and you can have right standing with him. Give evidence that Christ died and rose from the dead. This is what we're going to look at at the second half of Acts 17. I can't wait to get there. So I'm going to leave it at that. And if you're still nervous, start with the very simplicity of the gospel and its core truths, as Paul did. Focus on his suffering. Focus on his death. Focus on his resurrection. I would also encourage you to do this. If you've never wrote down or formulated in any way what your own personal testimony of coming to faith in Christ was, do that. Go write it down. Remember, where was I at when Christ found me? How was my life? What was I doing? And then talk and walk through how God brought you to faith. What He used to convince you of these truths. It might have been conviction of your own sin. It might have been breaking down uh, the walls that, that had raised themselves up in your mind are hard arguments against God, whatever it could be. There's going to be various roads to Christ. Not everyone's going to be the same. Each testimony is unique. Is this a biblical practice? And I say this because a lot of churches um, who are more dogmatic will say, no, you don't share your testimony. It's, it's all about the gospel. Well, number one, Paul shared his testimony consistently. We're going to get to the end of the book of Acts, and he's standing be- before King Agrippa, and Festus, and what's he do? He shares his testimony. Hey, I'll tell you what happened to me. I was going down to Damascus to kill some Christians, and boom, Jesus met me. He's giving his testimony. What's a testimony do? What's the purpose of it? Well, what it does is it contextualizes the gospel for someone who's never really understood it. It puts it in a context where they can say, I see. That's my, that's kind of my story. Now the gospel has a context where they can see what it is. 
That's why a testimony is powerful. First, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter said this to us. He said, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This consistent truth we've already said. Wherever Paul went, he had triumph and trial. And as I said earlier, we can tend to resist that truth. If you're not willing to suffer, you're not going to make any great triumphs in your faith. Just think of Job. I think Job sums it up best. You all know the story of Job. In fact, I might call Travis up here to comment on this. He taught this book to the youth. The most courageous thing I've ever seen anyone do. (laughs) If you remember, though, Job's wife, after all he lost and all he endured, Job's wife's counsel to him was this, curse God and die. Pretty godly counsel there, if you ask me. But here's how he responded. He said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? There's going to be similar, similar things happen to you. The heart of faith overcomes all of that and rises above it. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. Most of the grand truths of God have to be learned by trouble. They must be burned into us with the hot iron of affliction. Otherwise, we shall never truly receive them. Good quote. You can pretty much quote everything Spurgeon said. God is with us. That's the application for it. You're going to have triumph. You're going to have trial. But God will be with you in all of it. Just as God allows us to be thrown into the fire, equally as sure as he will be there with us. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They suffered the consequences, were thrown in the fire, but who met them there? The Lord. That's the point. The Lord's with you. You don't have to fear. Last of all, I want to read this quote. Again, by G. Campbell Morgan. The measure of our triumph in work for God is always the measure of our travail. This propagative work is done, save at cost. And every genuine triumph of the cross brings after it the travail of some new affliction and some new sorrow. So we, are, so we share the travail that makes the kingdom come. What a good quote. I'll end with that. Let me invite the worship team back up. As you consider these applications for your own life, this truly, I, I want this message to be something that challenges us. These truths out of Thessalonica and Berea. They're not new truths that we've seen in the book of Acts. They're consistent truths we've seen in the book of Acts, but they're challenging truths. Church, if we're going to transform as a church and then bleed out over into the community, these are things we must change in. It's got to start with that one who says, I'm willing. Just as Isaiah said, God asked the question, who will I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. The Lord is not a respecter of persons. You might not think of yourself as an evangelist. You might not think of yourself as so wise to be able to do that. You might not think of yourself as capable. The Lord overcomes all that. He simply says, who's willing? I'll use you. That's what he's looking for. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for that message. I love looking at that passage. I love studying the church of Thessalonica because Paul has such a great love for them. And they were such an active church. They struggled with understanding certain things and Paul patiently, as he did when he first visited them, patiently answered their questions and laid things out open for them to understand. 
Father, I want that kind of heart as a pastor. I want that kind of heart to build the church up, to love them, but to challenge them that our faith here at Waypoint in Clovis would sound forth from us, Father. And we'd be excited to see how you're going to use us to lead others to you. And then get excited to see you change lives, pull people out of the darkness and depths of sin, transform them from a dead person to a living soul. Father, teach us how to be disciples in that way. As we sing about your greatness in this last song, Lord, may that be our motivation in going out and being willing to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.